Episode 21, International Astronautics Congress 2016 Predictions. You're listening to SpexCast. Welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. I'm Phil, and today I'm joined by TJ. Hello. Augie. Hi, everyone. And Drew. Hello. And we're going to talk about the International Astronautical Congress before it has happened. So right now it is September 23rd. On September 26th, uh, the International Astronautical Congress, or IAC, uh, will take place in uh, Guadalajara, Mexico. And there's some big news that's being, you know, um, expected to come out of it. So we're going to talk about some recent events in space first, because a lot's happened <laughs> recently. And then talk about the big announcement. The big thing. Yeah. Yes. Elon Musk is giving a speech titled, what's the, what's the title again? Making humans a multi-planetary species. And we've known for a long time that Elon wants to get uh, humans to Mars. And so hopefully he'll tell us how they're going to do that. And uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later on. So let's start out with the news. All right. So the main news item, uh, before we were able to record, uh, there was the SpaceX incident at the beginning of the month. So we haven't really had time to talk about this. Right. And literally an hour before we recorded, SpaceX uh, had another update where they've narrowed down the point of failure. They Can don't you- know the cause, but uh, they've narrowed down the point of failure. And we might hear some more things uh, at IAC about the explosion. But uh, that's our current status on that. Right. Can we Let's explain what, what that is. That's... The Amos 6 uh, Falcon 9 launch was on the pad in Cape Canaveral. Um, they were fueling it up before a static fire, which is just a test that happens before launch. They were just filling up the fuel tanks, and out of nowhere, there was a huge explosion, and the payload happened to be on top of the rocket, so there's a loss of payload. And for, I guess, like three weeks now, um, until now, there has not been an announced, like, suspected cause. It's mm-hmm. just been a strange anomaly. Nobody was hurt because the pads cleared for that test, which is, you know, awesome. Um, for the sticklers in the audience, uh, it was a rapid fire, a very fast-acting fire, not an explosion. Yes. So we'll, okay. we'll get to that as well. Um, so, yeah, this was, <laughs> like, very surprising. Like, we were all excited for a launch that weekend. You know, we're all in class. We're all going about our lives. And then breaking update, uh, the Falcon 9 had a rapid, unplanned disassembly on the yeah, pad. Caught everybody off guard. Yeah, and it, it's it's very strange. Uh, SpaceX was getting into a good uh, kind of flow. Launches were lined up. They were hitting just over three weeks out a launch, which is a really good cadence. Uh, and so this was, as Phil said, a static fire test. So this is designed to be a full uh, wet dress rehearsal for a launch. <laughs> so they put... Uh, the se- first stage and second stage are made it together. Uh, sometimes they put the payload as well. In this one, the payload was on top in the fairing. They take it all the way out to the launch pad, and they just do a complete dress rehearsal of what they would do on launch day. Including burning the engines. They yes. Just, they just hold it down so it doesn't fly Yeah, so it. all the same personnel who are going to be there for the launch are there. They're doing the checkoff list. They do the propellant loading. And then they do full engine ignition. So they spin up the turbo pumps. They ignite the engines. Uh, and then instead of releasing the launch clamps, they shut down the engines. And so this has been happening uh, for every Falcon 9 launch. 
and this is the first one where there was a critical failure. So usually when these things happen, they're designed to catch, you know, failures or issues with the rocket, and like so they'll they abort, happen. Yeah, right? so they abort the launch. Uh, there was one that was a, a very brief, well, that wasn't even a static fire. Um, they do the same checks as well for the launch, where uh, previously there was a Falcon 9 mission where they did the full countdown, uh, and then during startup they detected an anomaly and shut down. So there's a lot of sensors that are designed to detect any parameter out of bounds, uh, but obviously there was a very rapid, unexpected failure that destroyed the second stage uh, and then made the entire rocket explode. Since the failure, I've seen all over the internet just like people just not knowing what, what's going on. Since they're just loading in the propellant when this happened, there was speculation maybe it's the launch pad, maybe it's the rocket. Um, and there was even like solicitations. If you've seen anything, send us an mm -hmm. email. Um, but this morning, uh, SpaceX released some some news. Can you share that with us? Yeah, so they have an official uh, anomaly update on their website. Uh, so you should read that for the full details. Uh, but basically, they see the main point of failure being in the second stage helium tanks. Uh, one of those ruptured, and that caused the second stage to... Uh, explode and fuel to mix and that caused the failure. Uh, interestingly, this is the same system that was part of the CRS-7 failure. Uh, for that one, there was a strut that failed and that led to a helium leak and then a tank failure. Uh, this one, because it wasn't under any dynamic stress, it was just the buoyancy force of the tank. Um, we don't think it was the struts, especially since they've upgraded the struts since then. But it's very interesting and kind of unfortunate that it's a, a failure occurring in the same helium subsystem. Yeah, yeah. So the helium, helium tanks are there because when the fuel is used up within the tank, um, you can't just leave empty space behind. The helium backfills the, the fuel tank, right? Yeah, the, the engines need a f uh, certain feed pressure uh, for the turbo pumps. Yeah, and also tank pressure is a part of the structural integrity of the vehicle. So those tanks need to be pressurized uh, in order for the full strength of the design right. to be uh, in effect. But this is the second stage, so those tanks wouldn't have been engaged for the static fire. Is that correct? So they fill up the tanks, uh, with, especially with locks. Boil off is pressurizing the tank. Okay. Right? Um, <clears throat> and then once they're pulling full fuel, then they're pumping in helium. Right. And, you know, I'm not very familiar with when those tanks are filled. Uh, they could be filled during the same time. I'm just, I don't know. Okay. But that that is what what happened. One of those tanks ruptured. So we don't know why. Uh, SpaceX doesn't know why. Um, but that it's, it's unfortunate that it's the, the same system and it's going to be interesting. Well, it's key to note that they pointed out that through their fault tree and review process, um, they basically say that they have exonerated any connection with last year's CRS-7 mishap. So I imagine they've kind of proven, at least to themselves and internally, that it's not another strut failure. This is something else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it is a... It I mean, it appears to be a coincidence. Yeah. Which is, you know, fortunate because every failure that's happened hasn't been the same thing twice. The fact that it's not the same failure, or at least there's no evidence that it's the same failure, is encouraging because it means that they probably fixed the strut problem yeah. totally. Yeah. yeah. 
Now, what's really interesting is that the timeline for SpaceX's return to flight uh, still appears to be very aggressive. Uh, in this update from today, uh, September 23rd, they still think that sometime in November they'll be they'll be able to refly. Refly being um, having another Falcon 9 launch. It, it most likely will not be a reused stage, um, okay. but that is partially because their second Florida pad. Uh, pad 39A is almost done being renovated. So even though the the one had the failure, is all burnt up and they're still repairing it, they have this the new one that's coming online. Yeah, so that was supposed to be done in November, and it looks like they're kind of progressing with that. Uh, and then if they can fix uh, the helium tanks in Falcon 9, uh, and then all their validations work out, they could be launching from November. Uh, but again things might change. Uh, with CRS-7, we had, I think within a month, um, a cause, which was the struts. But at that time, they decided to kind of take a step back and do a full safety review. Mm -hmm. So looking at every kind of possible failure mode and trying to mitigate those failures. And right now, um, since like since that already happened, we, they don't have to go through that whole process again, so it'll be much quicker to, to return to flight. It, it seems like they're not electing to do that process. Obviously, that process didn't see this failure mode with the helium tanks, which is unfortunate, uh, but it looks to be that SpaceX is, is trying to fix this main problem and get to returning, uh, launching customers' payloads. And there are a couple customers that are really eager to get up in the air. Uh, Iridium is launching their next generation of communication satellites, so that used a satellite phone that's mostly powered by Iridium's network. Uh, and so that came up in the early 2000s, and they're looking for their next generation network that can send more data faster. Uh, and there's an interesting issue with insurance where they want to have the first set of satellites with the Constellation up and then wait a few months to make sure they're all functioning, to make sure there's not a design flaw with the satellites. So they have to get that first launch out of the way as soon as possible so that that insurance period can pass and then they can start launching them. And Iridium also has uh, some Russian flights as well. So they're not solely going with SpaceX, but SpaceX is the majority of that constellation. Or speaking of flight delays, at Vandenberg, uh, United Launch Alliance's launch uh, that's coming up has been delayed by a forest fire. Yes. Um, so Vandenberg is in California and a forest fire has is burning through, you know, the woodland um, too close to the path. Have they evacuated? the? Are, is anybody in danger? So that forest fire has just finally been contained as of today. So um, the danger of the pad, there's no damage to the pad. They had to evacuate people, but the fire's contained. The pads could be safe. Uh, but it did delay uh, a ULA launch. So that was uh, ULA and SpaceX's pad are very close together. So that was a danger to both of them. Uh, and... That's where Iridium is, all the Iridium launches are happening, is Vandenberg. Mm -hmm. So, you know, bad things are happening, but there's a bright side, right? Um, speaking of bright side, OSIRIS-REx, yay. Um, OSIRIS-REx is a, it's a mission to an asteroid, Bennu, and the satellite's going to go and rendezvous with this asteroid that's flying around space, look at it, map it out with some lasers, and then actually get a sample of asteroid material and return it to Earth. Um, and that was launched, launched successfully just after our interview with uh, Tori Bruno and totaled success. And in five years, we'll hear back. 
So. Yeah, that's a really exciting mission, and in the future on SLS, there's the Asteroid Redirect mission, which is going to send humans to an asteroid and be able to do more extensive science. So doing it robotically is lower risk, lower cost, test out a lot of those sensors and the general process of doing it, and then eventually sending humans out there to more to study it more in depth. Let's talk about SpaceX's, SpaceX's, roadmap. SpaceX's roadmap to getting... Um, making humans an interplanetary species, if you want to use their um, verbiage there. Yes, so the main meat of the conference is going to be technical specs, we believe, of the SpaceX Mars rocket. Uh, but also, the way they've changed the wording of the description is that it's going to kind of present ways that NASA and other commercial companies and other organizations can contribute uh, and have humans land on Mars, right? It's not just going to be SpaceX paying for the whole thing and landing SpaceX employees on Mars. They're they're actively looking for governments, NASA, other countries, other companies that want to contribute. Because even with a Mars Direct style mission, you're still looking at $50 billion of cost, right? Uh, so what SpaceX is kind of positioning themselves as is the transport system. So what they're doing, uh, they're not using existing rockets, obviously. They're looking to build a new rocket. And instead of sending, say, four people or seven people to Mars, they want to target 100 people at a time. And so that's a huge jump up because their goal is not to send a human to Mars and check off a box. They want to develop a rocket architecture that can support sending lots of people and material to Mars over the next 20, 30 years. Uh, so the current target we have is 100 people to Mars or 100 tons of useful cargo. So you can kind of understand the dramatic scale of that is going to be. Yeah, like for example, um, the crewed capsules that are in development now to bring crew to the International Space Station um, carry seven people. Yeah. And, they're, you know, Orion is going to take people around the moon and stuff. Um, even then, that's still less than 10 crew members. Mm -hmm. um, so 100 people, does that mean 10 times the size of the capsule or 10 and how many, ever many times larger of a rocket I, rocket science is not linear you know like if you want to take 10 more kilograms of mass that doesn't mean you have a 10 times bigger rocket it means you know you it's exponential really in mm -hmm. a lot of in a lot of ways well tj has there been any talk of a transport system that just gets refueled in space yeah, so, just goes between earth and mars so there was some leaks about rumored specifications and at Obviously, it's going to be a big rocket. It has to yeah. be a big rocket where the rumors are like up to 15 meters wide, and they're looking at maybe even 30 Raptor engines at the bottom. Yeah. So this thing is going to be huge. Uh, but even then, you don't have enough fuel to go all the way off from Earth, all the way to Mars, and, and come back all in one go. So they're looking at uh, in-space refueling. That's kind of a lot of the math that people have done based on those specs, right? Is, okay, they're going to be able to launch the crew capsule up into low Earth orbit, and that has built-in tanks, and then send up fueling tankers to fuel that up. And then once that's refueled again, that will send itself to Mars and then land. And the, these are the rumored things based on, you know, a few of the... <laughs> minuscule, uh, really, it, it, amount of information that people have had access to because 
as most of us are well aware, everybody at SpaceX is kind of trying to keep the surprise until uh, the International Astronautics Congress. Yes. Now, there's a lot of like interesting design choices in this. Obviously, it's going to be big. It's going to be probably bigger than the Saturn V. We don't know how much taller it's going to be, but it's going to weigh way more, guaranteed, right? Uh, and there's also going to be methane-powered. So we talked a little bit about uh, methane-powered rockets, and that seems to be the new trend, uh, mainly because, A, for reusability, if you fire a methane rocket, you don't get coking, which is uh, carbon deposits on the nozzle, which can uh, deteriorate the life of the engine. Right, so methane basically burns cleaner. Yes. And then for Mars, the main fuel you can make is methane. Right. right? You can, And so you need an engine that can use methane. And so there haven't been any orbital or flight-proven methane rockets, but Blue Origin's working on the BE-4. SpaceX is working on Raptor. There's a lot of talk about, you know, mining the me- methane off the surface of Mars and refueling our ship um, that way, but that's probably one of the most complicated engineering challenges that they'll have, um, especially in the short term. So obviously that's the ultimate goal, and it's a convenient fact that we're developing rockets right now that use methane, and Mars has methane. Um, but what do you think about if we're already sending um, tankers into low Earth orbit, if you could send tankers all the way out to Mars and actually fuel have some fuel stations closer to Mars? ULA's ACES uh, plan that, that they talked about space trucks and basically um, having reusable space vehicles that they can transport stuff around. So I wonder if um, that's on the table. It doesn't. It seems like uh, an idea that since people think of um, ISRU technology mining the methane from Mars, I, I feel like everybody kind of just like jumps to that as being the, the end solution. Um, and even if it is, we have to figure out ways to get around it before that technology is developed. So bringing the fuel to Mars would still take a lot of energy. Um, but I guess if instead of taking people, you just take a bunch of fuel, right? Exactly. You just fuel it up. So you may have to send the empty fuel tanker, fuel that tanker up, and then send that to Mars and then send more with it. it, it I mean, it could take a while. Just instead of sending the mass of people, you send the mass of fuel. And at least in the short term, that may be a lot easier. And it will probably significantly decrease the amount of engineering effort that would need to go into developing in situ resource utilization for methane on Mars if you actually have humans there working on it. You could send scientists in the first few hundred people that are actually going to work on this problem of, okay, how do we, how do we start to mine methane on Mars? I'm imagining a giant floating gas station orbiting Mars now. <laughs> uh, and this certainly seems, it does get us closer to the idea of colonizing Mars as obviously a 100-person transport is for colonizing, not just a single science mission. Right. Uh, And then with the Raptor engine, right, that's SpaceX's methane uh, engine, Uh, it's different than their Merlin. Obviously, it's a different fuel, uh, but it's also more complex. So we talked about how the Merlin 1D is designed to be the workhorse engine. It's not the cutting edge of technology. It's supposed to be cheap. It's supposed reliable. to be reliable, powerful, uh, and have a great thrust-to-weight ratio. With Raptor, because 
the main purpose of MCT is to be going to other celestial bodies, you want to maximize delta V. So switching to methane actually increases your ISP already. But they also use something called full flow stage combustion. So the Merlin-1D has what's called a gas generator cycle where you have a turbo pump which is pulling in fuel uh, and pushing into the combustion chamber which gets you your high chamber pressure which is related to efficiency. Uh, but that turbo pump is spun basically by a smaller rocket motor. So you're taking a little bit of uh, liquid oxygen, a little bit of kerosene, burning it, uh, add a different fuel mixture to have it be a cooler exhaust. That spins your turbine and then you dump it out the side. You have a little mini nozzle and you dump it. So that's what, if you look at uh, Merlin right now, that's what the little like tailpipe that comes out of the mm -hmm. side is. That's the little tiny bit of uh, gas used to drive the, the turbo pump? Yes, yes. Now that's not the most efficient because you're taking some of that massive fuel that still has some useful energy in it because it's fuel rich and you're dumping it at lower pressure. And so, not using it as thrust. Yeah, because it's not going through the main combustion chamber where it doesn't go through those high pressures, it's it's less efficient than it could be. Uh, full flow stage combustion is more complicated but more powerful. This is what the space shuttle main engines used where they took some uh, hydrogen and some oxygen and went through what's called a pre-burner, where they combine that. And you're going from a cold, very cold gas, to a now warm gas, because it's, 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 it's been combusted a little bit. That turns a turbo pump, and they do that for both the hydrogen and the oxygen sides. Then they have a second pre-burner for each, where they're taking the entire flow of hydrogen and the entire flow of oxygen plus that incoming gas from the first pre-burner, igniting that. And what, what's the advantage to that? That means that you're, you have two ways of, two pumps increasing your feed pressure. So you're going from tank pressure, you're pressurizing it first, then you're taking high pressure gas and then going through another turbo pump, which pressures it even higher. And then you can dump them all out the main nozzle. And, and then all of that goes into the combustion chamber and then that gets fully ignited and then dumped out the nozzle. So so there's no waste and you're, plus you're getting better performance, but obviously it's way more complicated and uh, I know like... Yeah, you're developing turbo pump blades that are going to be inside rocket exhaust, <laughs> right? Instead of just taking a liquid uh, or like a very high fuel rich mixture, so mostly fuel with a little bit of combusted oxygen, you're now just taking basically rocket exhaust and you have to develop metals and, and alloys and designs that can survive that. Uh, and that's a huge challenge, but that gets you a, a good increase of efficiency. And when you're starting to talk about going beyond Earth orbit, that efficiency is key, right? right. It's not thrust, it's that efficiency. Um, speaking of efficiency, uh, right now uh, with the Falcon 9 first and second stage, they both use Merlin engines um, that are slightly modified for the second stage to be more efficient in high orbits and stuff. Um, with Raptor, if they're using that as their main engine and the interplanetary engine, um, being you know in a vacuum in space is very, very much different from being in the atmosphere, and your efficiencies and your performance are going to vary drastically. Um, so are they... It, with the Raptor engine, using that for both of them, is it going to be like, maybe they're targeting some middle ground? Or are they just going to do what they did for Merlin and slightly modify the interplanetary Raptor um, to be, like, maybe have a longer nozzle and be better for 
in the vacuum instead of... Um, yeah, I mean, that SUV. nozzle is a very critical component, right? A vacuum-optimized Merlin D is very different than the first-stage Merlin. And so, you know, they could, they're most likely going to have a, like, first-stage Raptor engine and then a second-stage vacuum engine. But what's interesting is the landing engines for when they get to Mars. Mars has an atmosphere. It's roughly 1% of our atmosphere, but it has useful aerodynamics, and using the atmosphere to aerobrake is probably going to be part of the mission plan, right? right. Uh, but if you have a very large vacuum nozzle like the 1D has, when that is flying through Mars' atmosphere, that's not going to survive. Right. Right, because that, that metal is super, super flimsy. Uh, so they might go to, like, a middle ground where it's not the same as a surface-level optimized engine, but it's not fully optimized for vacuum. They might use separate engines, which has a lot of different problems we just don't know. And so that's something that's really exciting that we're going to find out on uh, Tuesday yeah. is exactly how they get around that problem because that is it's a big problem. Uh, the Raptor engine is going to be, like you said, the Mars architecture vehicle has been rumored to be you know, upwards of 15 meters wide. Right now, the Falcon 9 is about, what, three meters? So, yeah, huge, which means a huge engine on, the, or a lot of big engines on the bottom. For development purposes, SpaceX has developed a mini Raptor. Um, and as Gwen Shotwell, the president of SpaceX, kind of dropped on us at the SmallSat conference, um, they shipped one to McGregor, Texas, which is their rocket engine testing facility, and are doing tests. and seeing, you know, how well their Raptor engine is working, which means they figured out a lot of the problems, right? So, mm -hmm. like, that whole complicated full-flow gas generator cycle or whatever is a major development milestone. And uh, if they're testing one, that means they've got it working, so... Um, yeah. And so uh, Augie, who was at the conference, you know, he got a live tweet, that announcement. It was later clarified that it, it's a uh, scale model. So we don't know. We assume it's not a full size Raptor. Right. Uh, but also what's interesting is that SpaceX signed a contract with the Air Force to develop a mini Raptor. So this is a methane based Raptor engine uh, that would supposedly be a second stage for Falcon Heavy. And so uh, with uh, Falcon 9 and Falcon Heavy, the second stage is kerosene-based. And even though they have that really big vacuum nozzle, it's not as efficient as the Centaur on an Atlas V, right? Uh, so if they switch to methane and that more efficient cycle, they could make a same size, same mass upper stage, but it would have way more efficiency, way more delta V. Right. So like right now, like the second stage is a separate fuel tank all by itself anyways. Just change the fuel that goes in and change the, the engine on the bottom mm -hmm. and uh, bam. <laughs> yeah, so they're, they're getting money from the Air Force for that, but we don't know if that's ever going to fly. Uh, and the, but that, that's a really good platform to test a mini Raptor. So we don't know uh, if that's still going to happen. It's a small amount of money, though. I mean, it was like a, it was like a few million or something like that, maybe even like fifty million. But SpaceX had to outspend them like two to one. I mean, it, it everything helps, but um, it's obviously I think something that they chose to uh, go after because they were already developing that anyway. It's just kind of money that will assist them in the process. I bet they were already going to develop a mini yeah. after. I wonder what, how they'll keep such a complex piece of equipment cheap enough to make spaceflight, you know, their their goal of reusability yeah. uh, to make it something we can do 
on the cheap. Well, I think in quotes. Well, once you achieve reusability, then then you can spend a much higher cost up front on the rocket. You can use totally different materials because you won't be throwing it away. You'll be reusing it every time. Now, with uh, MCT and BFR, both parts are supposed to be reusable. And so there's actually a very interesting uh, article that came out. Uh, Torre, which is a composites company, signed what they're expecting to be like a $10 billion contract with SpaceX. They're finalizing that. Uh, and that very strongly hints towards composite materials for BFR. So we talked about on the Space Planes episode, uh, X-33 Venture Star. They made composite cryogenic fuel tanks. Yeah, as a NASA project. Yes, and that was designed to reduce the... Uh, mass, the dry mass of the vehicle so they could do single stage to orbit. So they ran into lots and lots of issues with cryogenic uh, embrittlement of the tanks, but NASA solved most of those issues. And that, again, this is in the 90s. So we've had 20 years of composites experience on top of that. And in that report, they talked about that making cryogenic tanks wasn't as big of an issue as they thought. Yeah. And so that's really interesting news. That's kind of interesting. I guess one of the reasons why we haven't seen more development into rocket engine tanks using composites is because they've been expendable. So reusing things is one of the enablers to having this carbon. And then along with carbon-based structures for for spacecraft, then we get all the other added benefits. Yeah, exactly. So once you can return both the first stage and the second stage, you can make those more expensive because that cost gets amortized over lots of launches. Right. So that's that's really exciting, and that allows for mass fractions that can get you the Delta V to take a large payload to Mars. Right, so that's, that's gonna be very interesting. And we're talking about, f- could be 15 meter composite tanks. So, you know, Boeing made the 787 with a mostly composite structure, but we're talking about so a fuselage even bigger, even wider than that. And that is, and operating at cryogenic temperatures, which a 787 doesn't have to do. So that's really going to be impressive if they can pull it off. Um, But yeah, that's really exciting. So let's talk about our speculations for what will be revealed about human colonization of Mars at the International Astronautical Congress. Augie, you want to go first? Yeah, let's go first, Augie. Um, So the, the... talk is only going to be an hour. Um, I think we're going to see a lot of stuff. I think it will mainly focus on um, basically a call to action to get uh, universities, um, different companies, different governments to work together to try and achieve this multi-planetary vision. Um, and he may even touch a little bit on <clears throat> on planets other than Mars and potential capabilities um, that we will have once we get to Mars. Um, some things that I think we won't see um, are the new spacesuits that SpaceX has been designing. I don't think we're going to see anything about that. I, I bet SpaceX will do another uh, news announcement in the next couple months, uh, maybe sometime next year, as they get closer to commercial crew. Um, basically, like a whole other hype, hype thing on that. Um, Why do you think that is? Do you think it's because of the development state of the spacesuits, or do you think it's just like, you know, they're limited on time, it doesn't fit in, and they can use it as a, um, you know, degenerate hype down the road? Uh, yeah, I think I think more so b- both things. I think they're limited on time. I think they want to make the focus um, more on you know Mars and how we're going to make things interplanetary, and not these badass spacesuits that they've designed. Although it may help. I, I mean, that's literally what um, I guess 
they they contracted out a, a costume designer or a company that that did graphic design for movies and uh, literally asked um, I think Elon at, like specifically asked them to make them badass looking um so we're still <laughs> waiting for for the full reveal of those um but i think that'll be further down the road honestly i bet they're still refining that um just like they're still refining their mars plan but the mars plan is something that that really they will benefit greatly from if more people come together and collaborate on it because it's a tough task especially for a company that is still trying to um reliably um reach low earth orbit it's something that they're going to need help on and i think they'll kind of lay the groundwork um, lay the framework for that. And I actually think that's something um, SpaceX is well suited to do. Um, they know kind of the most about the space, more so than any other private company in the world. Um, and they also have done different things with the public before. Like they've gotten experience working with the public on the Hyperloop, where they have this competition that keeps getting pushed back. And I think now it's going to be this summer. Um, but basically, that was a call to action. It was like, Hey, look! There's this great pod design. With Elon's, like, we think it'll work. Um, SpaceX will supply the track. You guys come race it, and let's let's figure out like what the best solution is going to be down the road. So I think it will be kind of similar in that vein. Um, but in this case, I think SpaceX will say, "Look, we're going to build the spaceship. We need stuff to send. We can't be thinking about you know how how the specific in situ utilization will work." how we're going to get you guys food. Like we want other engineers of the universities to collaborate together and come up with a real plan. Um, and, and they can kind of cherry pick ideas from that. Um, and, and I think it will be more so a very joint effort. Like it won't just be um, like SpaceX will provide the transportation. Everything else will be supplied by other governments and individuals. Right. So do you think that Elon Musk's talk will be more of like – trying to be inspirational, like you said, a call to action. Do you think they'll reveal any new development that they've been working on? Oh, yeah. I th I mean, I think that's actually the avenue that they will use as a call for, for inspiration. They'll basically dump a lot of technical details on us, and they will say, look, we think we have a path to Mars for a low cost. We are going to do this. We need your help developing the, the extra technologies that go with it. So I really think it's going to be a very technical uh, interview. I think Elon's... Um, the way his showmanship works is he just does better when it when it when it comes down to revealing awesome facts. People get more excited about that. It won't be any sort of like Kennedy speech like we choose to go to Mars because we want to kind of thing. It'll be like, you know, we think we can go to Mars because of X, Y, and Z. Um, here are the other key things that we need to get there. Um, you know, maybe they'll even lay a, a framework for collaboration and say, look, like here's a contest develop something, develop a payload, and we'll sponsor it to Mars or something like that just to get people thinking about it. Right. And he said back in April, um, it's going to be crazy and entertaining. Do you think that is still going to hold or do you think they've kind of reined it in? And No, I think it's going to blow people out of the water. I think it's going to be something that, at least for engineers, I think it's going to be something that no one has really expected yet. Um, one of the early rumors that leaked um, – that may or may not be true, we'll find out on Tuesday, was that they had a plan to send a nuclear reactor to Mars. Um, and so they would use solar energy, but um, solar energy, you basically only get an eighth of the efficiency because you're so much further away from the sun and there's all that dust to deal with. So sending a nuclear reactor could could mitigate a lot of those problems. And I think when when people see that, they're going to be kind of blown away that um, you know SpaceX doesn't hasn't done anything in nuclear reactors before. They're basically going to say, look, like this is the best solution. And then you hopefully will get um, nuclear reactor like experts coming together in their own universities and working on solutions. 
um, that that will provide this opportunity. You're you're kind of expecting a more open thing. Do you think that will lead to like open like sharing of knowledge and, and technology, or more of here's our rocket, here's what it can do? And I, I think so. I I think SpaceX um, will will maybe be a little more public about their their Mars development than maybe they have been about some of their rocket development. Not only because of ITAR and, and all these rules and regulations, but just in general, I think that this is um, something they really want to do, and it's also something where there there's not a significant financial impact on another competitor doing something else. There's just so much to do. They're currently the only company that has said they want to be a transportation company to Mars. They want to charge individuals $500,000 to take them to Mars. So if no other company has ever even suggested that they might be interested in doing that, you don't really have to worry about competition on that front. Um, where, where with low Earth orbit, there's tons of companies right now, a lot of even small, smaller companies that are trying to um, bring rockets and br- bring satellites into low Earth orbit. So yeah, I think it will be a lot more collaborative. All right, Drew, what are you, what are your expectations or uh, what's your speculation for what's going to happen at the IAC? Well, I I don't know about speculations, but I like Augie's idea of more collaboration. That just sounds cool to me, particularly because maybe I can work on something. But I really want to know more about this hundred-person mission mm-hmm. or a a vehicle capable of a hundred-person mission because. The whole idea is to make us an interplanetary species, and colonizing Mars just is cool. So I want to know everything that Elon will have to say on that topic. Right. Personally, I think it will be, you know, that grand vision, hopefully some technical details to, I don't know, improve our further speculations. But I don't know, I'm, I'm holding back maybe because I don't want to get my hopes up but I'm not sure how much detail we're going to see. Um, recently, Elon, uh, he's also, you know, doing stuff with Tesla, and he published a master plan, which is a long-term plan of where he sees Tesla going and what he, what the goals are, what the milestones are. You know, I, I have a feeling it's going to be similar to that, where it's a, a master plan, long-term Here's what we want to do, haven't filled in the details, because so far, as far as going to Mars, we don't even have that. We just have, we're going to go to Mars, and we're going to use this, maybe the methane, there's so many gaps. I disagree with you there, Phil, and I'll tell you why. Um, I think there will be a lot of technical details, um, and, and because of just the fact that they've been planning this for over eight months, like Elon announced this. It's been like over a year since since he's announced this and this has been planned. Um, with something like the Tesla Master Plan Part Two, like one day he che- he like tweeted, "Oh, blog post coming this weekend." You know what I mean? It's kind of like very abrupt, you know, spur of the moment inspirations where he's like, "This is the direction that we're going to take Tesla in the next ten years." Let's show the public from a high level. I think on the other hand, where there's SpaceX, where they've actually been doing you know, a limited number of people, but they've been doing real technical engineering work on this. I think it will be um, as much or more technical details as we got with the Hyperloop white paper. And that was something that they wrote in like a weekend and they just dumped all this information and it was awesome. And I mean, maybe that's part of my optimism and that's just what I'm hoping for, but I really think we're going to see a lot of technical details. You know, you bring up Hyperloop and with the whole involving the public, it does sound like a really good, you know, test bed for for accepting um, and testing out the public's ideas um, in a controlled environment, I guess. Or maybe like with the Hyperloop, 
it's an idea that came from SpaceX, right? And there's, they sponsor this competition, but they don't hire people to work on it, right? So I kind of disagree with you, Phil, in that, you know, the Hyperloop was like Elon's kind of research paper. That was his, his fun activity was like, you know what? I'm just going to invent a fifth form of transportation. <laughs> and so he had some of his friends who were SpaceX engineers help him on that. And he's like, I don't have time to do this. Like, this isn't aligning with my, like, life goal. And he let it, you know, open source the idea, and SpaceX is hosting that student competition, which I think is pretty awesome, and RIT has a team competing in that. Um, but Mars is one of his, his life goals, and SpaceX was created to reduce the cost of access to space because the main roadblock to colonizing Mars was the cost. So SpaceX is tackling that with reusability, streamlining processes, and Mars is that end goal. So I'm going to be pretty content just hearing, you know, any solid confirmed details with such a short timeline. Uh, but my my kind of wish list is I'd like to see a video render of launching a BFR, refueling in orbit if that's part of the mission plan, and the MCT spacecraft landing on Mars. What do you mean? Something you can watch on repeat, like the Falcon Heavy? Yes, I, I, I want a render of that. Uh, if I don't get that, I'll be, I'll be kind of sad. Uh, something I very, very expect is going to be there is a rocket chart showing the current rockets flying, Falcon yeah. 9, Saturn 5, and then BFR on there. Because New, New Glenn, uh, Blue Origin, when they announced New Glenn, that was their centerpiece graphic is these are all the rockets that have come before us. This is where our rocket places, and we're right up there with the Saturn V. Yeah, quick, quick aside, New Glenn is a launch vehicle that was announced by Blue Origin, which is, you know, huge. <laughs> it's a heavy lifter vehicle, right? Um, it's going to use their, their new engines. Yes. Just quick aside there. Oh, yeah, I, t I totally expect and think that Blue Origin announced New Glenn when they did, uh, just for that reason, right? Because this has been kind of hyped up. Uh, and so I, I definitely think there's going to be a graphic. Um, Gwyn Shotwell told us that Raptor testing had been delayed because of the accident, so we're not going to get a Raptor test video, which is mm -hmm. unfortunate. Um, I don't think we'll get any Dragonfly tests. Dragonfly tests. Dragonfly is the uh, vertical landing test program for Crew Dragon. So I don't think that might uh, be shown. Uh, it might be because Red Dragon would be using those same engines. Do you think we'll get any Red Dragon details out of out of this, or is that I something later? I don't think so. I mean, it's still two years or so off, and we we know it's it's going to be a Crew Dragon. They're going to have to modify a bunch of different things to it, but it's, and it doesn't directly contribute to making humanitary interplanetary. I guess. Yeah, it's right? it's going to be mentioned. They're going to be like, we're doing Red Dragon. Well, I think it does. I think if SpaceX is sending something t to Mars, such a large mass, that's the perfect time to perform studies that look into things that you're going to need to know going down the road before we get humans there. Totally. Red Dragon is validating the technologies and mission planning that that BFR needs. Right. Um, so it, Red Dragon is definitely going to be t like mentioned. I don't know if we're going to go too deep into this is what we're going to be doing in 2018. I think it's going to be like, this is what the rocket looks like, this is what the capsule looks like, this is what the mission cycle is going to be, uh, because that's still unknown. Um, we're going to get some, I hope we get some cool renders, hopefully we get some new wallpapers. Um, yeah. Uh, but also, I think it's going to be very technical, as Augie said. Uh, if you look at the Mars Direct announcement, Robert Zubrin, once he announced it, 
uh, and he went around to different NASA centers trumping that. Uh, you know, he had a t- very technical presentation. He's like, this is the like this is the challenge from a physics perspective. Well, yeah, this is the engineering requirements. You have to convince rocket scientists that you're, you know, you know what you're talking about or they're not going to listen to you, right? Exactly. And you got to look at what the forum is. This is the International Astronomical right. Congress. It's a perfect avenue for SpaceX, it. SpaceX. It's not a bunch of press. It's not a bunch of spectators. Yeah, SpaceX could have done an event like they did in Hawthorne for Dragon 2, right? Where they invited press and, you know, Friends of SpaceX to be there. I think there's going to be graphs. There's going to be numbers. There's going to be, you know, engineering analysis shown to us. Uh, And as Augie said, Elon Musk resonates with people when he demonstrates engineering feats, right? Uh, He's not the most perfect speaker, uh, but what he says makes you think of like, wow, like they did that or they're trying to do that. And I didn't even know that was a goal that we could be that could be reached, yeah. right? So I think it's it's going to be numbers based. Um, they we're going to get a lot of questions answered. Like, is it going to launch from land? We're not probably not going to figure out exactly where. If they do, that's going to be. I don't think that's going to happen. They're not going to give us a like a state where they're going to launch from. But we're, we're going to figure out. It's like okay, they're going to launch from a launch pad at land or at sea, which is still an option. Um, we're going to probably get numbers of like the flight rate because Augie mentioned the 500000 uh, per person ticket price, right? That's what it's going to cost to get people to colonize Mars. The first mission is not going to be that. It's going to be right. millions or tens of millions. And so I, I think we're going to see a breakdown of this is how much the first flight's going to cost. This is how much 10. This is much 100. And probably going to see a timeline because the timeline we have now is – 2025. It's like, we're going to get humans to Mars by 2025. I don't think we'll get a date. I don't think we'll get a date, but uh, he'll explain the next 10, 20 years after that. I think we are just as likely, if not more likely, to get a date than we would be to get the cost. I don't think they'll give us a cost chart. I don't think they know for one. And I don't mean a like a initial cost, but it's like, at this point, 20, 30 years from now is when it's going to hit those costs, right? But again, yeah, it is it is pretty unlikely. Yeah, maybe in passing he'll mention it, but I don't think we'll get a chart with real numbers. Um, one because they'd be all speculative anyway. And then you know, the the inner nerd in me would like some like overviews of Raptor because we have rumors, but specs yeah. on like thrust and ISP at the bare minimum would be great. Yeah, uh, that going would be into great. like more in depth for that would be awesome. But then you run into ITAR restrictions. Right. Uh, we'll figure out if it's composite or not, or you know, all all about that. Um, we might get some interior shots, like rendering, which would be awesome. Like concept art stage. Co- concept art and like cat, like CAD drawings. Like this thing has been catted at least to a high level. Yeah, there's there's definitely they've they've looked at where things are gonna go inside, and they're gonna. They might not show it, but I'd like them to show it, right? Yeah. And then, as Augie said about spacesuits, they're probably not going to be like, this is our Mars spacesuit. They, I don't think they're going to be doing that. Uh, however, the Crew Dragon uh, commercial crew spacesuit is in development. It should be pretty much done. Um, we're probably not going to see it, but I do think that if they do do renders, like video renders, and they have people... The, the real money shot is a person stepping out of yeah. 
MCT onto Mars, and mm-hmm. they're going to have a spacesuit placeholder. Yeah, that's probably similar in vain to theirs. Yeah, I, I could see that. Because the, the Crew Dragon spacesuit and the actual Mars spacesuit are going to be different. So that would be cool. Uh, we'll see. So give me give me a real prediction. Like, like what do you think um, they're going to do for, for refueling? You think they're going to fuel up in, in low Earth orbit, and then you think they're going to go to Mars and refuel on the surface using in-situ resource utilization, or what? Yeah, so I'm, I'm thinking, so I personally am against orbital refueling uh, because that's extra a lot of extra steps. But having a rocket that's two to three times taller than the Saturn V and at 15 meters is just not realistic, really. Um, so refueling in orbit is most likely to happen. We're seeing that become more common in mission planning with ACES. Um, so yeah, orbital refueling, uh, I think they're going to land on Mars. I don't think they're going to launch with a nuclear reactor. I think they're going to use solar panels, either those inflatable rollout solar panels. Why have is that? Just because... That's an extra, a huge section of government regulation you have to deal with at first. So it's first. like just a, an obstacle that, you know, they might want to sidestep for now because it's not worth it because it gets in the way and holds up other stuff? Exactly. I, I don't think the first MCT to go to Mars or the first dozen right. will have nuclear reactors. I definitely think it's likely. I think, though, think about this, though. When they reveal their plan, they're going to reveal the best plan that they can think of. If bureaucratic, like regulations, stuff like that gets in later, they could always fall back on solar. See, so I, I, I agree with you that they, they want to go all out, right? When they announced Crew Dragon, they're like, it's going to land propulsively. Well, it's going to land with parachutes in the ocean to begin with, and then it's slowly going to evolve to be, to be able to land. But SpaceX is not about pushing the technological boundaries in every department, right? They have a clear goal and they're gonna push what areas need to be pushed in order to meet that goal. And you can get enough power with solar panels. It's, you have to have a lot of them and it kind of sucks to set them up and all that, but you can do it. So since you can do it right now, it's not, you don't think it's in their best interest to do some more development because it's what we have is already good enough. The other thing is too is SpaceX already has investment in Solar City. Like they've bought Solar City bonds. Probably that's just because Elon has close relationships with both those companies. He's a CEO of one and chairman of the board of the other. Um, but they're already invested in each other, so they'd have easy access to solar panels. So I could see that happening. I don't. I don't think they're not going to put a nuclear reactor reactor on it at some point. I definitely think that they might present of you know. 10 years in the future when we're reducing cost, it's going to have a nuclear reactor. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think the, the first one's going to be What do you use. think about refueling on uh, at Mars, though? You think they're going to refuel on, on the surface? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, that's just so much to develop, though. I mean, you have to develop the in-Earth, like low-Earth orbit uh, refueling, and then you also have to develop on Mars in-situ resource utilization and refueling. Um, wouldn't it simplify the design a lot if they sent tankers to Mars orbit and just refueled there because it'd be the same design? So that would simplify some things. However, aero braking is a critical aspect of this architecture, right? You're going that, to you mean using um, the atmosphere to slow down yeah. and then using your engines to land. Okay. Well, what what if so? So hold on. I wanted to bring this one up. What if they didn't refuel in Mars Earth orbit but refueled on Mars's surface? but didn't use in-situ resource utilization. They sent the tankers that were full of fuel beforehand. That See, that could happen. However, 
they want to have MCTs return, right? So, I mean, I guess I'd, I'd have to like look at it and like think about it, but with ISRU, with the Sabir pro reaction process, it really isn't that difficult. You mentioned mining methane. They don't have to mine anything. You just have the reactor unit, you have your feedstock of hydrogen, and then you open it to Mars atmosphere and, and like apply the energy. Compli the complication comes in development, but once you kind of develop the technology to be reliable and to work all the time, then it's just a package that you can set up and deploy. Yeah, and so it, it might they might have a test on the 2018 Red Dragon, but if they don't then, it will most likely be in 2020. So they'll have a small-scale version tested by 2020. And then with Mars Direct-style missions, you send a whole return vehicle that lands and generates the fuel, and so you make sure everything works, and that the tanks are filled up, and then you send crew to head back. I think that's going to be slow and just tough. Like, I think that it is more likely that they will just spend the money to send the fuel um, and develop the large-scale saboteur reaction they would need to do later when humans are already there. But, I mean, that's why we're doing these predictions. I could see them going the other way as well. I still think they might send a nuclear reactor, but that's cool that we, we disagree on that. Whatever it is, the the presentation's not going to be boring. Yeah, that's for sure. That is true. <laughs> uh, one, one last thing I wanted to, to bring up that we haven't really talked about is um, deep space communication. Um, so right now, like, the orbiters and the rovers that are on Mars communicate with Earth by beaming up to, you know, uh, satellites that are designed for long distance. So they, they phone in to the satellite that has a huge dish that beams it all back to Earth based on NASA's Deep Space Network. Um, SpaceX has announced, you know, their plans to have a satellite constellation for high-speed Internet for everywhere on Earth. Uh, they've got the satellite office in Seattle. Do you think that that communication, telecommunications technology uh, from Earth is going to make its way into the Mars architecture? And I do. I think, I think we'll see it, too. I'm going to call that prediction right now. I think we will see additional details on their satellite constellation. And they are still building, and there's a lot of regulation, at least in building in low Earth orbit, because they haven't been able to get the spectrum. But I think we will see more details, and I think that will be the plan that's outlined. They're going to build that same network on Mars, and they're going to use that to communicate. What do you think, TJ? See, I'm I'm somewhat hesitant uh, to if they're going to talk about their satellite network. So, a couple like a year or so ago, when we were thinking about their whole Mars plan, it, it seemed very clear. It's like, okay, they're going to start landing rockets. They're going to you know kind of corner the launch market, and then they're going to put up their SpaceX internet. And the as we're talking about you know tens of millions of dollars for a rocket launch. The satellite profit margin is extreme. Right, so if they move into you know providing internet access to people on the ground, that's where the huge revenue stream comes from. So do you see it only as uh, money to pour into their development, or do you so see it as like if you had asked me a year ago, I'd be like, okay, space is gonna, SpaceX is going to put up this constellation, generate tens of billions of dollars because that's what they could potentially generate, and shovel that into their Mars program, and kind of do a all-in-one, we're going to lead the path kind of thing. However, they have not uh, really talked about 
the SpaceX network at all, pretty much. They have a office in Seattle, but I don't think they've decided to build a factory, and I don't think there's a factory there. Uh, so things there have been going pretty slowly, and I don't know. We might hear it if they if they do come out and be like, we're going to build this and we're going to generate revenue. I think that'd be really cool, and just the practical applications are cool. I I don't know if they'll announce that plan. I think I think it's just so up in the air the satellite constellation to actually generate revenue on Earth. Granted, it's a huge market, um, and I think that SpaceX will want to tap into it. But I'm just thinking from a technical level, we may get the details that say, look, we're not going to rely on NASA's deep space network because if you have hundreds or even millions of people on Mars, you cannot you are going to clog up their deep space network immediately. Um, so you're going to have to build a new network. And I think that they may reveal some technical details about how they would do that, but not necessarily their, their game plan about how they're going to build it on Earth and make a bunch of money from it. Yeah, so you're saying yeah. not just use the revenue, but also use the technology that could be developed. Right. I just think they will focus on the technology aspect of it and show at least a path on how they think it will be done Okay. Now, and how they will do it. If SpaceX gives a render of like Mars colonized, I could definitely see them including, like, we have a SpaceX satellite network over Mars in that kind of render. But just as the high level, you know. But for communications game. for MCT to come back to, to land on Mars and communicate, I think it's definitely going to have an antenna, right, to communicate with Earth while it's, trans while it's coasting. Uh, and it would have enough power uh, and enough space to have a big antenna to broadcast back to Earth. Or they could use those satellites. And when you're talking about, you know, sending five people or ten people in the beginning, you can use NASA's network, and then once you're starting to send 50 people, 100 people, then you can put up your own satellites, right? Uh, and with part of having ISRU and having like a methane economy where you're producing methane is that you can build like a sounding rocket that runs off methane and put things in orbit because Mars gravity is reduced and the atmosphere is reduced. So, you know, it, that's really interesting. Um, but I don't know. I don't think it's going to be a big feature of like SpaceX satellites. All right, um, we're we're kind of out of time right now, uh, but we'll be certainly watching the stream that uh, is going to happen when Elon Musk gives this talk. After the fact, we're also going to talk with a space reporter named Robin Simengal. Is going to be tweeting at the event. He's going to be there for five days. Um, he's going to be there for the Elon's talk and a few days afterwards. And we're going to talk to him and, you know, see what he thinks about the event, uh, kind of digest some of the awesome information that's going to come out of it. Um, and you can follow him on Twitter at Nova underscore road. So uh, that's going to be a good time. Awesome. Right. Bye, Augie. Thanks, Augie. See ya. We actually recorded about 30 minutes of extra footage about the history and some past plans to get people to Mars, um, but we couldn't fit it in today's episode. So if you'd like to hear about it, let us know on Twitter at RITSpecs or send us an email to specscast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, uh, hear what you guys want to see at the IAC, and maybe suggest some questions that we ask Robin after he goes to the event. Until then, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on SpecsCast. With music by Kevin Hartnell.